Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hello, and welcome to this new episode of the Puck and Roll podcast. As you can clearly see, you are not being greeted by Patrick Lorty, as you've become accustomed to. Uh, he is not going to be able to make it tonight. However, we're still going to have a very fun episode in store for you all. And it's a nice small panel. It's uh, just me, Sebastian High, and I'm joined by uh, Joshua Rosa. And we are just going to talk a little bit about the Canadians and talk a little bit about, about prospects because I have uh, the the space now to and the time to talk about it. So I'll definitely make the use of that today. But Josh, I think we should probably start by addressing something that is definitely linked to prospects and that is trading away players from the Habs for draft picks. And there are a few names that have been really circling around um, it, the past weeks and months of, of Habs veterans that are on the trade block and could really bring back a lot of assets. I know we've, we've talked a lot about guys like Ben Sherratt and uh, even like Arturi Lekkonen to an extent, but there's a new name that has kind of joined the fray over the last week and a bit, and, and that is the name of Jeff Petrie. So Josh, what, what do you think that Jeff Petrie could realistically get on the trade market? Like, do you think he has positive value and then how much and how much stock do you put, put into this really weak season of his? Is it because he's declining or is it just because he either has no more motivation to, to put in all the work because of how bad the team is or that it's just an off year because of how bad the team is? I don't think I can put Petrie's struggles with this team solely on the whole team going bad because at the start, I mean, usually if you see that, you see the gradual decline. People start off fine because the season starts fine. You lose a couple games and it's not a calamity losing your head. And then when it starts to snowball, it that's when you start to see things. Uh, he did just sign the big... 6.25 million contracts until 2025, which there's always the thought of people cashing out. Like that's a big payday for Petrie and that he might just decide that's, that's his big payday. And then he doesn't have to work as hard. I don't know. He just has not been himself. He's usually the offensive driver on the back end for Montreal because Montreal's defense is very big and very stagnant and very not offensively heavy at all. Like the, the playoffs, I think it took till the fourth game in Winnipeg for the defense to score a goal 
and they yeah. didn't get a point at all against that was, Toronto. It was that was a long one. Yeah, I think yeah. I think it was Gustafson's goal that was the Gustafson. first. Gustafson. Yeah, 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 but it, it really took and a he's while. He's not even on the team anymore. No, he's back in Chicago. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 interesting to me because like Petrie again, like he he had such a solid reputation as this underrated defenseman who was playing second fiddle to Shea Weber for so many years, and but like always stepped up tremendously in Weber's absence. So this year, with Weber being quasi-retired, everyone was kind of expecting to see the Petrie that always stepped up when he was in that biggest role as a number one defenseman. And instead, what we've seen has been the equivalent of a third-pairing guy. Like, not like constantly being exploited defensively and just not bring any value offensively, constantly just spamming point shots in the power play. I mean, part of that has to be the system for the power play, right? Like, like there's no way that Petrie would just be shooting it from that area always because that that's never been his go-to thing. But there's so many just things in his game that just seem dead in comparison to previously. At the same time, it's only, he's only played, what, like 40 games this season? And are we really going to take these 40 games as a as more indicative of who he is than the previous like 400 i don't think that's fair either but it's been a rough stretch and and his value like, like no matter like what, what perspective you have is lower now than it was in the summer and that was lower than it was at the deadline a couple of years back when everyone was really thinking about trading tatar and petrie away which retrospectively may have been the right choice at the same time in that case, we may not have had the glorious run last season, but that was the time to cash out when their values were at their peak. And I, I, th- I think Petrie could garner a first-round pick, maybe, uh, it, especially if the Montreal Canadiens retain. If, if the Habs retain, because, again, they're not going to be competitive for a couple years, so they could retain if they want to. But if they do, and they bring down the salary to, like, $4.5 million, that makes it a lot more palatable for any team to to actually go out and acquire him. And that at that point, you might be speaking of like a first round pick plus. But he's a really tough one to gauge because again, he's had that almost elite level for so long, and then it just hasn't been there this year. He also has a modified no trade on his contract where he can submit fifteen teams. So that can really quash anything. Although I would see him weigh that to go to a contender to somewhere that he would really want and someone that would want him. But yeah, it what he's known for, he's become known for in Montreal is his steadiness on the blue line and able to bring that elite puck moving defensive style that he's done so long and that just completely gone from his game so far this year so it depends on whether GMs gauge him more on his past or what he's doing now because if he's based on what he's doing now he's not worth very much at all no for sure but it's interesting because like like it's it's almost been confirmed that he has like either formally or informally asked for a trade like he, he he does not want to stay in Montreal 
So even though he has that modified new movement clause, he's not really going to use that, right? Like he's not, he's not going to try to stick with the Habs considering where they are in the standings and how he's performing with the team right now. Like I, I would see him wanting to leave even like his family, like they stayed back home in Michigan because like, again, his, his future in Montreal, it really does not look to be a very long one. But at the same time, the Habs have no rush in trading him, right? Like, if they don't get a deal that they that they like all that much by the deadline, you can trade him in the offseason. With a contract that, that big, it's a lot easier to move in the offseason as well. So I, the, the nice thing is with the Habs, for basically every trade ship apart from Ben Sherratt, who's going to warrant a bidding war at the deadline, no matter what, because he's a player that a lot of general managers will covet, but all the other trade ships, there's no rush to move them, right? Like Arturi Lekkonen is another one. He, I would be, I would be surprised if he gets moved for less than a first round pick because he has been lights out this year. If you look at like by all the like, advanced stats in terms of like the value he brings, both offensively and defensively, he's been the Habs' best player this season, and it hasn't been very close. He's been electric and. It's been his best season as a Hab in his career. His defensive impact is one of the best in the entire league. Like you see a lot of jokes going around of like Lekkonen for, for Selkie, but I know he, he, he should not win the Selkie, but it's, it, it, I feel like he's closer to contending to it than actually being a joke because his defensive impact has been ridiculous this season. And that on a team that's honestly pretty bad considering we're behind the Arizona Coyotes who literally sold off half their team with the purpose of tanking. So if you look good on the Habs, you're probably playing pretty well. And Arturi Lekkonen is. So he, he's a player that really could get a big return. But again, he's still an RFA. So he's under team control. There's no rush to move him either. Yeah, he's been getting a lot of uh, draw from teams like New York. For sure, the Rangers have really been all in yeah. on him. St. Louis, it, I've heard as well. He's the kind of guy that hmm, he's really the kind of the guy that you would want. He's a rental. He's one year, two point three million dollars. It's not very much at all for what he can bring. And he also, if you remember from the when Jake Evans got injured by Mark Shifley in Game One, Arturi Lekkonen was the one that stepped up after missing, I think it was out most of the Toronto series. And he stepped up and he played first line minutes with Dano and Gallagher. And he kept up and he played great in yeah. playoffs afterwards. And that's got to be huge for a team contending for the playoffs, like the Rangers or the Blues. And I, it would be sad to see him go, but I don't think he has too much of a place on this rebuilding team like this. It's... To me, it kind of is between him and maybe like a Jake Evans, where they're both defensive guys. But I would like Jake Evans a bit more on a rebuilding team like this. He's younger. He's a Sarah. He has the cheap contract. He has yeah, it's like three years at like one million. One, I think it's like one point one or one point five or something. It's 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 cheaper than what Lekkonen's going to demand in the off season. And while I think Lekkonen is a better player than than Jake Evans. He's again in a rebuild. You can't just it's it's, the only players that that you should like cling on to and not let go 
are, pe- are players that are actually going to be core pieces, right? Like everyone else should be available at the right price. Again, I wouldn't move if, if a team offered a second round pick for Lekanen, I'm not taking that trade because I think that Lekanen brings more than what a second round pick would. But he's not, he should not be on any untradeable list because some team is going to make a big offer, right? Like we've seen this in the past with especially Tampa Bay acquiring guys like uh, Blake Coleman for a, the equivalent of like a first and a second round pick. Um, it was a first round pick. And I think it was, it was one of the foots. It was like, I think it was Nolan foot. I'm not sure. Or Cal foot. One of, one of, one of those. Uh, but it was the equivalent of a first and second round pick for a player who has, I mean, Blake Coleman is a better finisher than, than Arturi Lekkonen is, but Lekkonen brings more in terms of play driving. And I think they're fairly comparable players in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because you always get those like third line, like just like really, really good third line players going for a first round pick at the deadline because they bring what teams in the playoffs need really. And I just, I think, I think it'd be a very good time to cash out on Lekkonen purely because this is a rebuilding team and we have a lot of wingers. <laughs> like this team is like, say what you want about the quality of the team, but there are a lot of NHL quality wingers in this organization. Uh, none of them are amazing per se, but a lot of NHL talent is there. Right. So, and like, obviously you want to keep around someone like Paul Byron because he has no trade value right now because of that contract and the injuries. So why would you want to get rid of him when he can also still bring his leadership capabilities? And there's no point in like giving a team extra incentive, like a draft pick to take on Paul Byron's contract when we are the ones that are rebuilding. Like we're supposed to be taking on bad contracts, not paying to give them away. So in like a Byron or like Lekkonen in terms of which one to keep, I would, I would trade away Lekkonen purely because of the return. And I'd be curious to see what, what would happen with uh, Yoel Armia because he has, he's had a pretty nice contract this summer um, at what 3.4 million for four years. And he has scored zero goals in that contract, um, which is not exactly ideal. But he is also a player that clearly is coveted in the league in terms of his size and his playmate, his uh, stick handling and his wrist shot is devastating. So if he has a good season next year, maybe they can move him for, for something positive. But at least as of right now, you don't want to really trade away Armia either because you're not getting anything in return. Same thing for Mike Hoffman, right? Like, you're, no one's offering you anything from Mike Hoffman at this point because he's been injured a lot and he's scored a couple of nice goals, but he's a painful player to watch. Like, like Mike Hoffman, just even in the offensive zone, like, when he's not shooting the puck, it's painful because he sends up, like, this, his passes in the offensive zone. Josh, have you, have, have like, paid attention to his passes in the O-zone? They're, they're like they're like little like uh, muffins. They just kind of passes into the middle of nowhere, and they they're never accurate, and they go nowhere, and it's a turnover every time, and it just it, it hurts. It's a painful team, and it's yeah, hard to watch all around, really. Yeah, I mean, I was really really hoping this season that at least we could enjoy watching Cole Caulfield. But yeah, and they ruined that too. Yeah, I like a lot of people want Dom Ducharme gone. 
a lot of people are also saying though, like he, he has this terrible team on paper. Why would he, like, he doesn't deserve to get fired. My counter argument to that is if he were actually a good coach, maybe he would actually make sure that like, even if we're tanking, that young players would get opportunities and like play together, maybe develop chemistry. I know it's like a foreign concept here, but like I would just stick Suzuki Caulfield together, put them out there against good competition, like trial by fire, right? Like just give them game time, but it's, it's, there's, there are no stakes, right? It's a dead season. Just give them game time, let them develop chemistry. I would put Drouin on that line. Like, Again, defensive ability does not matter this season because we're not going to win games. But if you can get an elite offensive line going and chemistry between players, that could be like a second line in the future that's insulated. And then you have like a more shutdown, like, like a 1A, 1B kind of line. And then you have a 1B line with like Gallagher and Toffoli and Dvorak or something, right? So I don't know. I just, it, it, the young guys not playing up to par like even nick suzuki in terms of point production and even and advanced stats has not been great this season (laughs) like it's kind of just all around and like like romanov has had his moments but he's also had rough games yeah it's I'm, i'm really really hoping that the habs fire sale at the deadline and get a ton of value in terms of futures, whether it's draft picks or prospects, I don't really care. Um, but just getting potentially good young players in, and then maybe in the off season, we hire a coach who can actually play young players. That would be very nice. Yeah. Um, so do you think, is that you saying that Dominic Ducharme is not going to survive this season? And then I, I'd be surprised if he did because like at Kent Hughes's introductory press conference, he basically said like, I want to give Ducharme a chance to prove that he is a progressive coach. And Ducharme has done nothing to prove that even since that press conference, like he, yeah. And look, look I, I was really happy when Ducharme was made head coach a year ago because he had this track record of being progressive and it just hasn't translated to the NHL. It's almost like, I don't know. He just became a way more traditional than what he was made out to be in junior, whether that is uh, like whether he was actually progressive in junior or if that was kind of just amplified by fans and media. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it's, it's quite interesting because I, I I'm really, really hoping that some young coach, gets hired in in the offseason who is told like your job in the short term yes to win games but more importantly make sure that young players play develop correctly and make and develop chemistry together and because in the end you need your star players to be able to play well together right like if they don't know how to play well together there's no point (laughs) there really isn't and yeah, it's it's just it's a dead season, and I wish that Dusharm would use that to his benefit of trying things and being creative and giving these young players a shot. Yeah, there's just a distinct lack of just effort, emotion this year that I think you can really squarely put on Dusharm when you, 
you've got guys like Petrie coming out and saying there's absolutely no structure to the game that we're playing at the point that he said it, that they're just going out doing whatever is, for one thing, awful coaching. And that you just watch games and if you see a team like uh, Ottawa last year, they were not a good team, but you could see that there was the drive and the passion there. Everyone was playing as hard and as well as they could play. And it's different with Montreal having the expectations of doing well after making the Stanley Cup finals and still expecting to be a good team this year. But there's got to be just something there, especially from the young players like Suzuki and Caulfield, who are still trying to prove themselves in the team and in the league, that there has to be some passion that I have not seen in a long time. Like the one goal that always stuck out to me was in Arizona a few weeks ago, where I don't even remember the guy's name, just walked in from the blue line and just walked right down the middle of the... Giannis Moser. Walked, Walked right in and scored. And it's just like... It's hard. It gets to a point where it's like hard to care because nobody cares. Because yeah. with Ottawa, you watch them and it's like, okay, everyone's trying, everyone cares, everyone's playing well, and then you get behind it, but it's just nothing. And part of it is because this leadership was comp- the leadership core on the team was completely destroyed in off season, losing pretty much anyone of stature, Byron. Weber, Price, Perry, Stahl, and then having this rookie coach and he's just done nothing for the team so far. And like you said, he's not even planning for the future. He's not playing for today. He's just spinning tires and I don't see the... I was one of the people that was high on him after the uh, after the big... The big push through the playoffs, I thought he did great. Thought he adjusted during the Toronto series great. He did some really good things. But this year has just erased all of it, and I don't see how you keep going with him, even though they've said that they're going to keep him this year. I don't see the... Yeah, like, I, it, it, it's tough with him. And, I mean... I, I feel like we, we, we've kind of covered this topic as much as we can of just kind of ranting about, about Ducharme. But at the same time, this team has more issues than just coaching, right? Like it's a profoundly flawed team. But what, may, what gives me a lot of hope is that Jeff Gordon and Kent Hughes, they really project competence. Like, like they, everything they've said, everything they've done so far has been very, very, very promising. And like whenever, like even just the transparency in the organization, right? Ever since Shantan Maccabee was hired as uh, like the the communications VP, this team has be- become so transparent. Whereas like in in the past, it was always like, oh yes, this player has a an upper body injury and will be out for between one week and eight months. Whereas now it's like every single day you're getting updates on the injured guys, and it's like, oh okay, yeah, so. Dvorak, it's a concussion. 
but he's already skating and progressing really well. Uh, look for him to be back in the lineup within the next two or three weeks. Thank you. Like, like, thank you for, for like being so transparent with everyone, right? Because transparency has a big link with trust with an organization and having a fan base that actually trusts the people at the top of the organization will also help sell the fans on a rebuild, right? If, if the team were going into a rebuild with fans that just didn't trust the people that were doing the rebuild, it would be chaos, right? The Montreal media would, would eviscerate the, the, the leader, like the, the GM and uh, Jeff Gordon, but because they're competent and transparent and confident in what they're doing, I, I, I don't see how, like, obviously without, like, there are always going to be some exceptions, but the vast majority of Habs fans are going to accept this rebuild, even though they haven't actually got out and called it a rebuild or a reset or anything. They just said, want to build for the future, but I don't care what they label it. They want to build for the future. And that, that makes me really happy. And again, they just, everything they've said so far has just put a smile on my face, which is very refreshing from the Bergevin era. Oh, that's what, exactly what I was just going to say. I feel like these guys are not going to hear a lot of let's try and make the playoffs and anything can happen kind of thing. The anything can happen line. It killed me every time. Whereas now it's like maybe they're going to build a team where they're actually confident of if they make the playoffs that they can do something rather than just we'll see. Or maybe just a team that can confidently get into the playoffs every year and not be on the bubble like yep. the entirety of Bergevin's tenure. I think I think there are only like two, maybe three seasons in Bergevin's ten years where the Habs comfortably made the playoffs. Like it was it was not good. And even like, like these last two years where the Habs played very well in the postseason both years the Habs shouldn't have made the playoffs. <laughs> like Yeah. Yeah. I it it's refreshing and honestly it filled me with actual hope for the future of this team. Whereas as long as Bergevin was at the helm, I I was hopeful for like individual players like Suzuki or Caulfield or even Romanov, but it was never like I can see the plan here and I trust that in like five years' time this is gonna be a really good team. Okay, maybe not five years now, but like six, seven years, like really good team when like Suzuki and Caulfield are in like the height of their primes. I can see that. Like I can really see that. And it makes me happy as a Habs fan. Yeah. It's the brightest the teams looked. It, it's ironic that they're the worst right? in the league and it's their worst season ever, but it's honestly the brightest future that the Habs have had in almost a decade probably yeah pro- probably since Bergevin inherited that core of Price, Pacioretty, and Subban right like like, yeah. like Bergevin really was given a wonderful hand with those three players and and Gallagher was was already in there in the organization too like that that is quite the core to build around but as we know it never amounted to an actual Stanley Cup though we had two very nice runs in that in that time span, but yeah, and I, so I think that we've covered this segment pretty thoroughly. However, I think it's time that we uh, start looking into the past with this day in Habs history, 
Josh, do you want to go on and tell us your wonderful stories about Habs history? On this day, February 2nd, the year of our Lord, 1918, the NHL's first superstar reached his pinnacle. The Phantom Joe Malone scored five goals in the Montreal Canadiens' 11-2 win over the Detroit Red Wings. It was Malone's 13th straight game with a goal and just the 13th NHL game played by the Montreal Canadiens. In just over a dozen games, the NHL had already found its first 30-goal scorer. Malone finished his 13-game goal-scoring streak with 34 and finished the 20-game season with 44 goals. On February 3rd, two streaks reached their conclusion. In 1968, the Habs beat the Kings 5-1 to win a team record 12th game in a row. They would lose the next day to the New York Rangers 3-0 before rattling off another eight wins in a row. On the flip side, thanks to a goal by former Canadians captain Brian Gionta, the Buffalo Sabres beat the Canadians 3-2 in 2015. The win breaks Buffalo's losing streak at 14 games, just one shy of the NHL record of 15 losses in a row by the Philadelphia Quakers. Forward Shell Dahlin was born on February 2nd, 1963 in Timrasswin. His time in Montreal was short, having only played three seasons in the NHL, but he holds the record for most goals scored by a Canadian rookie with 32 and tying Mats Nasland for most rookie points as a Canadian with 71. His next two seasons were severely hammed by injuries, and he returned to play in Sweden. Current Habs centerman Christian Dvorak was born on February 2nd, 1996 in Palos, Illinois, USA. Drafted by Arizona in the second round, Dvorak played most of his junior games between Mitch Marner and Matt Chuck where he registered 109 points in his first season and 121 for his second season. He was traded to Montreal this offseason for a protected first-round pick, and this is your reminder to thank the hockey gods that protected first-round picks exist. We're about to say that. Steve Penny was born February 2nd, 1961 in San Juan, Quebec. Penny was thrown to the Wolves as a rookie in the playoffs of 1984, but pulled off impressive upsets of the Bruins and the Quebec Bulldogs before hitting the wall that was the Mighty New York Islanders on their way to winning their fifth straight Stanley Cup. But as time is wont to do with its cyclical nature, history repeated itself. Penny sat out of the 1986 playoffs with an injury and saw another rookie sensation out of his hometown, St. Foy, tear up the playoffs and win the Stanley Cup that year. That rookie was Patrick Waugh. February 3rd is the birthday of former half defensemen Matthew Dandino and John Merrill. The eldest of the Kostitsin siblings, Andre, was born in Belarus today, two years before his younger brother, Sergei. They were the last brothers in the Montreal organization since the Pitlick brothers were reunited this year. And finally, Hobie Baker winner Jake Blake Jeffreyon was drafted, was born today. 
When drafted in 2006 by Nashville, he became the first ever fourth generation NHL player. And when he was traded to Montreal, he was the first ever fifth generation Montreal Canadiens player after his father, Dan Jeffreyon, Bernie Boom Boom Jeffreyon, and his great grandfather, Howie Moran, all played for the Habs. That's awesome. And and uh, Blake Jeffreyon was a uh, University of, of Wisconsin alum, which is uh, funny because it uh, it also garnered Cole Caulfield an extra uh, fan during the playoff run in JJ Watt because he and Blake Jeffreyon were buddies when because they both played at the University of Wisconsin at the same time. So that it's quite the legacy for the Jeffreyon family. And I I think I knew that. They were also related to Howie Morenz, but I somehow forgot that's that fact. That's amazing. Like it really is just like Habs legends of Boom Boom and Howie Morenz. Yeah, the other two not not so much, but those two no, were but legends. If only Blake Jeffrey had been able to replicate their success, it would have been very nice, but it was not to be. <laughs> yeah, the Hobie Baker curse. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Hopi Baker winners just don't like Hope, Cole Caulfield's going to be an exception. We know this, but I mean, Jimmy VC and Will Butcher are not great NHL players, <laughs> and uh, they're NHL players. That's they're NHL players. Yes, about them, it's, it's more than than Blake Jeffreyon, but. Yeah, like a lot of it, a lot of them just get really overhyped after winning the Hobie Baker. Usually, when they're like, when it's in like their last year of playing college, and then they're just so the oldest player is playing, and then when everyone hypes them up, it's like, well, no, it's just because they're bigger and stronger and older than everyone else that they're playing. So yeah, it kind of just kind of just happens. But hey, it's still fun to look back at Hobie Baker winners and dream of what could have been and Blake Jeffreyon could have been incredible when uh, I mean with with the heritage of that family all right Josh so you have in front of you a list of my kind of conditional rankings uh it's not it's not finalized for like actual actually being public because there are still a couple of players in there that I haven't been able to watch that I think I'm going to be very high on um, so I can't, I, I can't, it's not a real ranking, but it's kind of just to give myself and people on the podcast an idea of how high I am on certain players in regards to, in comparison to others. And so Josh, you have that list in front of you and you see like my rankings are there and you also see right next to it, the rankings of each player on Bob McKenzie's list. Now, are there players in there where you're kind of curious of like, why I might be a lot higher on them than Bob McKenzie or a lot lower. And again, it's not of actual actually Bob McKenzie's rankings. It's like his survey of NHL scouts, which is why it's always the most accurate like indicator of where the players are actually going to go in the draft because it's input from actual NHL scouts who make the decisions. Yeah, first off, I got to say this is incredibly impressive. There's so much information and names and everything that I'm just kind of in awe of reading through all of these things. It's quite the accomplishment you got here. It's and quite a hobby some... to have. It, it, it's quite the investment of time. And if I, if I were working and not 
just a student, this would not be feasible. <laughs> yeah, that's off you. It is impressive to look at. And there's some impressive uh, jumps compared to what the NHL scouts and Bob McKenzie believe. And one that sticks out to me is a defenseman, Seamus Casey, who's all the way up on number 12 on your list, which is about 32 more than what Bob McKenzie has him at. So what's, what's Casey's deal here? So Casey's a really interesting one. Uh, like him and another guy that, that you'll get to in a second, if I'm not mistaken, considering a big gap in my ranking and Bob McKenzie's. But the thing with Seamus Casey is that my ranking of him is nothing really out of the ordinary. Like if you look at public scouts, very, very few of them have Seamus Casey outside their top 20. Like also the person that, that like whose list I've seen, who's the highest on Seamus Casey is friend of the podcast, Will Scouch, who I believe has Seamus Casey in his top six. I think I'm pretty sure Seamus Casey is his favorite defenseman in the entire draft class. And I can, it, it took, it, honestly, it took me a while to see it with Casey. I, I really had to watch, like, it was only by the third game where I actually, it kind of clicked in of like, okay, I, I see it now. The first few, I was, I was more skeptical and he started out towards the end of my first round, which is still a lot higher than uh, NHL scouts. But um, so with, with him, it's that his offensive ceiling is tremendous. He is incredibly creative. Um, he, he brings the puck up into the offensive zone. He's a very good stick handler. He's a solid skater. He needs to improve his skating to really pop and become more dynamic, but it's, it's just the offensive toolkit that it just, it, it, it hits you like a truck. It's, it's really impressive to watch when he's on his game and playing with skilled players and playing in the U S NTDP, it's the right scenario to play with skilled players if you're Seamus Casey, but it's, it, it's really impressive. But, Defensively, he's good. He's again, it's not it's not a strength. I think, like in terms of NHL comparables, it's not in terms of like actual quality, but more in terms of play style. Maybe think a Morgan Riley type. Again, it falls flat a little bit because I think that James Casey is a better defender than than Morgan Riley, but Morgan Riley might be a bit better offensively. Again. It's also tough with the players this young to give them these comparables because things always change between draft project projection and what actually happens. But that type of player who can just, he's electric in the offensive zone. He, he, he's really fun to watch also in transition and getting zone entries. I, his, his hockey IQ is one of the higher ones among the defensemen in this, in this draft class. And it's why I have no issue putting him at 12 where he currently is on my board. And it's also a bit of a tight spot with defensemen on my board. Like I have Juracek, Nelson, Casey, Adelius, and Matejchuk all between eight and 14. So it's, again, there can be a lot of movement in there, but at the moment, I, I really, really do think that Casey is going to be one of the better offensive defensemen to come out of this draft class. That's saying something because guys like David Juracek and Simon Nemetz, they pop offensively. And Ty Nelson, I'm a big believer in his, including his offensive ability. But yeah, K- Casey, like if he falls to 44, 
like he is on Bob McKenzie's board, a team is getting an absolute steal. And if the Habs can snag him with a second round draft pick, like if the Habs like pull off a trade, like a Ben Sherrod trade where they, 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 they trade away Ben Sherrod for like a first and a second. And they use the second round pick on Seamus Casey. I don't care who the first round pick is because it could be, it could be anyone and it wouldn't matter because if you get Seamus Casey from a Ben Sherrod trade, you hit gold. And it's, it's, yeah, he, he's a fun, he's a really fun one. And I, if I, I have an inkling that the next player that you're going to ask me about is a man with one of the best first names in this entire draft class. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about hockey names where from defense to offense, right winger from uh, the MHL, Omsky Karelia, Gleb Trikazov. Gleb. Gleb. Ah. He's just, uh, he's just three, three spots down from Seamus Kitty there. And he's quite up from Bob McKenzie, 64 ranked. Uh, where, where did Bob go wrong this one? Gleb is such an interesting one because he started the season on basically no one's radar. Um, he's, he's also, he's almost eligible for the 2023 draft. He's one of the youngest players in this, in this entire draft class. So looking as good as he has is all the more impressive because he could have very easily not been available in this draft. He is really, really rocking up draft boards. And I, I'd be very surprised if he's still at, if he's, still below 50 on Bob McKenzie's list by the end of the season, because it's, it, you, you can't overlook his abilities when you watch him play. Uh, and so he started the season pretty much like the fourth highest ranked Russian player on most boards behind uh, actually maybe in fifth. I, I, th- I think he's actually fifth on most people's boards uh, behind uh, Danila Yurov, um, uh, Ivan Vladimir Grudinin and uh, Alex Parabalov. And now, I mean, he's second. I, I still have Yurov above him, but that could, uh, oof. I've been very tempted. I've been very tempted to switch those two. Like, I, yeah, if, if we recorded this next week, it's very possible that I would have Gleb Trikozov ahead of Danilo Yurov. And it's because Gleb has, it's just, his, his offensive toolkit is mouthwatering. He is one of the best um, puck handlers in this draft class. His his shot is interesting because some games it's devastating and incredible. Other games it's just muffins. So I don't really know what to think of his shot just yet. I have to watch more of him just to be sure. But the skill level is just so undeniable. And he's he's played a couple games against pros in the VHL, which is the Russian equivalent of the AHL. Um, and I've preferred what he's looked like there to uh, compared to Mirosnyshenko against pros, even though he's not putting up points. Um, that I don't care about points at this point because in the end, I, yeah, I think, I think points are a little bit overrated in terms of prospect analysis, but yeah, Gleb is one of the most skilled players in this draft. I think, um, I think Will Scouch actually had a really interesting prediction or, or no observation even um, that of all the players in this draft, he, he thinks there's, there is a possibility that like Gleb trick is ends up becoming the best player to come out of the draft class, which is really saying something. But if you watch him play, like, okay, defensively, he's not really a factor. He 
doesn't put in the effort. He kind of just stands there. And like, there are a lot of things to iron out in his game. That's undeniable. Like, like he, he's not going to be NHL ready for a while, but the, the, the skill set is incredible. There's definitely a chance that they never makes the NHL, but if he makes it, he's going to pop. And that those are the kind of swings that you take in the middle of the first round, right? Like, would you prefer like, look, okay. A guy like, like Marco Casper is an interesting prospect, but his ceiling is probably that of a third line centerman. And like, say what you want about the value of a third line centerman, which is pretty good, but would you prefer a pretty safe bottom six player with a mid, with the middle of the first round pick, or do you want to take that home run swing? Glove Trikzov is that home run swing that, that, that you want to take in the first round. So I'd be shocked if he does not go in the first round on draft day because some team, like especially if he gets into like the late twenties, some team's going to take a shot at it because the value there's undeniable. He's so young, so skilled. The upside is really, really great with him. Okay, so enough with the good stuff. Let's uh, Ooh, okay go to flip side. Uh, the the guys that have fallen in your eyes compared to others. Um, the biggest one I think that I could see is Isaac Howard, left winger. You got to have him at 43rd compared to him being in the top 20 on other lists. But what sticks out about him that puts him down so low? I think Howard is a very, very, very divisive prospect this year. Um, in terms of like scouts that I respect a lot, they usually either have him have him in their top like 16 or he's just not in their first round. Like there, there, there just isn't a middle, a middle ground with him. You either you love him or you're really skeptical about how he translates to the pro game. So going back to, to talk about Will Scouch, he loves Isaac Howard. Like I think, I think he's in his top 15. But another guy that I respect a lot, David St. Louis, it's like not even close to the first round because there are just so many question marks. And I find myself falling closer to what uh, David is thinking in terms of Howard, because I just, I just haven't seen it. Like I, okay. So I, Isaac Howard, his, the reason people like him a lot is that he's really quick. He has a lot of skill. So he's one of those home run kind of swings. So we were just talking about Gleb Trikasov and I was saying, you take those home run swings. Isaac Howard is not a swing that I would take in the first round because I, in terms of actually how his tools work together, his play is looking really like jumbled and it lacks coherence. That's playing against junior competition for the most part. And that makes me worry of how it translates towards the pros, because if you can't like figure out how to like, use your skating and your shot and your playmaking and your stick handling all together to dominate to the junior competition. How are you going to do that against the pros? I, I don't know. He makes some really good high level reads uh, that, that really make him stick out. And again, he's at, he's, he's still at 43 on my board. 43 is still, that's first half of my second round. That's a solid player that, that, that you could draft there. But in terms of, first round quality i i'm very very skeptical because i just again if if he makes it in the nhl he's going to be a, a legit top six winger like he he's going to be one of those like 15 goal 45 assist 
quick playmaking kind of guy that every single team in the league will, will want. I just don't think that, that the risk of spending a, a first round pick on him is worth the outcome where I really, I, I don't even think he, I, I think in all likelihood, he's going to be a, a Charles Houdon type of guy who is great in the AHL and just can't make the, the next step to the NHL. So I, I still have him at 43 because there's a chance of him really, really popping in the NHL and being great. But I, I've, I really want to like him because he's the type of player that I like a lot. I, I, you know this, Josh. Like I, I'm, I'm a big fan of like speedy, modern, uh, quick wingers who are really good playmakers, have skill, have upside. Yeah, I, I'm trying to love him, and I just. I, I, he's been, he's been falling. I, I had him at like 30 earlier, but the more I watch him, the more I just become like, even though a lot of people I respect like him, I, I, I can't put him in my first round from what I've seen so far. Hopefully he steps it up in the second half uh, between now and the draft. But I, from what I've seen, I like a lot of other players in on that same team a lot more. And that includes guys that aren't on most first round boards, including Lane Hudson and Tyler Duke. Um, but yeah, he, he, he's an interesting one and I, I've been keeping my eye on him for a while now, but yeah, that, that, that's my take on Howard. Yeah. You made a really interesting poignant point there when you're saying how he's still, do you, we talk about these, um, prospects and especially the ones that have fallen and it's easy to get hung up on the negatives when these are still among the best hockey players in the world. These like low second round, third round guys, they're still incredible guys. And I think to finish off, we'll even it out with another defender that's fallen down. And that's Ryan Chesley that we haven't mentioned before. What, what's, what's his deal? What's his. I like Chesley a lot. I, I I'm a big fan of Ryan Chesley. Um, it's, I, I think it's just reflected more that NHL scouts love his type of defenseman more than I do. Um, I have him at 35 on my list, uh, sorry, 34 on my list because I like him a lot because he, he's a fun, he, he again, he, he's a, he's a big, okay. He's six feet tall, but he, he plays a pretty like sturdy game. Uh, he's a solid skater. He has a nice shot. He should be putting up more goals than he has so far. Um, and he, he's just one of those players that like, I have no doubt in my mind that he's going to be an NHL defender for many years. I, I, I think like, like a, a third pairing guy is almost a lock for Chesley. The question is how much more can he go up from a third pairing guy? Right. And I guess NHL scouts are really confident that he can be that he can be that second pairing guy. Um, whereas for me, I still have some question marks just in terms of upside. But I like him a lot, and I, I've watched him play. And the he, he's he's had some very nice creative plays. Um, the first game I watched of the US NTB, NTDP, I was more impressed by Ryan Chesley than I was of Seamus Casey. And but the more I watched, the more it's like, okay, I think Chesley is a better player than Casey right now. I, I, and I stick by that. I think Chesley is a better junior player than Casey right now against junior competition. But in terms of upside, because everything about the draft is projecting, right? Like none of it is how good they are now because you're drafting a 17 or 18 year old kid. 
It's all about how good is he going to be in the future and how confident are we in that? And he plays this solid defensive game with some nice offensive tools. I, I, th- I think, I think his absolute ceiling would be a David Savard as in David Savard in his prime, not David Savard. Now going to be very clear on that distinction, but David Savard in his prime, it was a hell of a defenseman putting up great defensive numbers, had a nice shot. He put up 30 points a couple times, uh, like just one of those like sturdy, beloved defensemen, uh, right, right shot defenseman. And I can see Chesley becoming that if everything pans out well. But I just like the guys I have ahead of him more in terms of upside. Like I, I have him, he, he's, he's second in my second round rankings right now, right behind Adam Ingram. And I had Ingram a bit higher earlier on, but I have him ahead of Chesley because I think Ingram has a higher ceiling than Chesley. And I think is a better likelihood of him actually hitting that ceiling. And the same can be said for guys like Cutter Gauthier and Rutger McGrory and Jim, Jimmy Snuggerud and Yuri Kulik, all, all these guys I have above them. It's, it's just, it, it's a pretty tight little section. Like honestly, a lot of like draft analysts have been saying it this year, but this, the gap in quality between the players that are being ranked like between 20 and like 64, this is one of the drafts where the, the gap in quality between those players is the smallest ever. Like it, it's, it's splitting hairs for a lot of this, which it makes it tough to do these rankings because in the end, it's mainly personal preference in this tier. Uh, so I, I have Chesley ahead of Noah Warren, who everyone that's listened to this podcast for a while or read anything I've written, you guys know I love Noah Warren. He, he's one of my favorite players in this draft class, but I have Chesley ahead of him, right? And at the same time, I could switch that pretty easily and feel pretty good, but it's a really tight bunch. and. Yeah, so like it, it's it's pretty tough, but Chesley is a fun fun player, but more limited in terms of upside than other guys on the board. Well, it's always a pleasure to pick your prospect brain. It boggles the mind sometimes. All the stuff that you got up in there, it's oh. been an absolute pre- pleasure. It's always, always. fun to, t- to chat about it. I mean, I spend so much time watching these games. It's nice to actually put it to use, um, but. But yeah, no, it's 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 a fun list to put together. It's also always a bit daunting to, because the the time commitment for it is pretty great, um, especially considering I'm a student and I kind of also still want a social life. But yeah, no, it's 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 a really fun project to have going. And I mean, look, the the fun thing about draft analyzing is that it, it's kind of like betting in a way right and and it's kind of like a game because it's all about like seeing who would i prefer in which slot and then at the end of the day on draft day i'm going to make picks for each time for each draft pick that that the habs make right so before they make it i will write down the name of a player that i would pick in that slot and then in five years we can see or 10 years we can see how good or bad was i right and it's kind of fun just in that way because it's like you can actually see how good you're doing year to year. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun project to have going for sure. Yeah. And I think that actually concludes this episode. I think that we've covered quite a wide range of topics, especially considering how painful the Habs have been to watch recently. Uh, so we tried to deviate away from actually talking about the games because ouch, 
Um, but yeah, I think, especially for a two-person panel, this was a really fun, lighthearted episode. And we thank you very much for listening all the way through. Uh, thanks again, Josh, for, for joining me today. And uh, hopefully next week we'll be rejoined by Patrick Lorty and Scott Cowan. And yes, so that concludes this episode of Puck and Roll. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day or evening, and we'll see you again next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 